Hello, today we're speaking with Dimitri Gorshetsin, co-founder and CEO at Enduring Planet. Welcome to the podcast, Dimitri. Thanks so much for having me, James. Great. To start, could you tell us a little bit about Enduring Planet? Sure. We provide fast, flexible, and founder-friendly credit products to small businesses and startups that are working to address the climate crisis. So today we offer two non-dilutive funding instruments. Uh, one is a revenue-based financing product for sort of early revenue companies, typically in the like, call it sub 10 million a year in revenue range. And then uh, we also recently launched a, a new product to help folks bridge the often long timing delays in state or federal grant funding in climate. So we'll, we'll advance capital against state or federal grant funds that have been announced, but not necessarily dispersed. And over time, we'll be adding additional credit products. We want to really have a full suite, non-dilutive financing options for climate entrepreneurs from basically inception to IPO. And what drove the initial decision to start Enduring Planet? Oh, man. Uh, I think this has been a really long time coming for my co-founder and I. We've both worked in, in climate and catalytic finance, impact investing and credit, kind of all the things that touch our work today. We've been doing those things independently for give or take a decade each. And I, I had an opportunity to build a startup out of a venture studio last year, a group called Enduring Ventures that I'd been working with for a little while. And they sort of presented me this opportunity. And I, I think I'd always really wanted to build this business, the capital gap in climate is not nearly as often discussed as some of the other elements of the crisis, right? So folks talk a lot about carbon removal. They talk a lot about carbon offsets. They talk a lot about tech that needs to be built, et cetera. But I feel like the money side of the problem is not as sexy. That's fine. But we need about $5 trillion a year in investment to actually get to 2 degrees C. We last by last count, it was like less than 700 billion that was invested. So that's an almost 8x increase that's required. And the credit side of that capital stack is dramatically like under, it's just not happening. And so uh, we need a whole host of creative, flexible, like founder friendly capital instruments in order for this transition to happen in a way that like reduces harm to you know vulnerable people and really everyone and so we wanted to put a dent in that and as you're thinking through like the scope and scale of the problem and immediately when i hear trillions right like these are exciting big tam numbers and so on how do you start to think through what the first set of customers might look like who should you service right because it's always the difficulty when you have these very very large opportunities it's like what is our kind of wedge into that opportunity yeah i think it for us, you know, we started with this kind of early revenue bucket. So revenue-based financing was our first product. In many ways, was an ideal first product because it lends itself best to automation. You, you sort of, if you look at the historical kind of alternative financing, alternative credit landscape, there's a lot of RBF lenders in e-commerce and SaaS. And uh, we thought the model would actually apply really well in the context of climate. And it would also allow us to explore lending to both startups and small businesses, which have very unique, they're often look very different 
both in terms of the revenue trajectory, but also in terms of the systems they use, how they manage their accounting, et cetera. Like there's, there's a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? There's just a lot of variability. And so the revenue-based financing was kind of an, an attractive entry point. And that meant that, you know, because we're sort of on the initial portfolio, we have a, a higher end cap on how much money we're willing to put into any individual company because we don't want to get overexposed. And so what that means is that we sort of artificially limited our initial customer pool to sort of folks who have, you know, north of half a million in trailing 12 month revenue, but less than call it five to 10 million in trailing 12 month revenue. Yeah. And I'd love to just kind of get into some of the specifics around revenue-based financing. You know, I think a lot of the listeners will be familiar with traditional venture. They'll be familiar with even you know, a lot of startups have founded themselves just with too many credit cards or uh, kind of a, a quick personal loan or whatever it is just to get something up and running. And there's been a kind of growth in revenue financing. You know, one of the big companies, Pipe, and some of these folks have kind of emerged in the last few years. So yeah, so I'd love to kind of just you know, understand a little bit more about the revenue financing as a model and the pros and cons of that compared to some other maybe more common forms of financing. Sure. So I think maybe at first you got to split the capital available to entrepreneurs into two buckets, dilutive versus not. So dilutive instruments, that's, you know, your equity. Um, some debt can also be dilutive because it has warrants or conversion principles that you have to sort of account for. But that that's that bucket. And then in the non-dilutive bucket, you have grants and you have debt. Those are the only types of capital there are. And revenue-based financing is a type of debt. It's just not structured the way that I think what most folks think of when they think debt, they sort of imagine term loans where you sort of pay interest, you have principal payments. If you miss payments, you're in default and it gets really painful. Well, revenue-based financing takes a different approach to lending. And so in, in our case, we provide a company capital and they give us a fixed percentage of revenue for an estimated term that allows us to like hit our, our target returns. Uh, we actually publish our term sheet on our website. So anybody who is interested in our capital can actually see all of the dynamics of the product before they even apply. And, you know, typically we're lending uh, sort of le less than half a million on the first go around. That number will go up next year once we have a larger capital facility ourselves. But today we're lending up to half a million, generally in exchange for anywhere from like three to 7% uh, of top line revenue. Uh, and typically it's on like an estimated two year term. So now that capital, it comes with no collateral requirements, no personal guarantee requirements, there are no warrants, there's no conversion, there's no complicated covenants. It's like really simple, really fast. It's, it, is it more expensive than a traditional bank loan? Sure. But the bank want, you know, will take your personal assets as collateral in case there's a default. Uh, and so if your business goes down the toilet, your house is going with it. And in our case, we will, we will never do that. Right, and even even besides those folks uh, who have a house to to lose, you know, often banks just won't engage in technical startups, uh, anyways, right? That's because right. they won't That's really right. they don't really have the prism of what the kind of assets that those kind of companies are building until they're quite large. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, 
banks won't lend unless there's you know three years of trailing revenue history. There's a lot of collateral. And even then, they still want a personal guarantee. And often those, those multiple factors are like very difficult for a startup or a small business to achieve because even if you're like, you can be profitable and have a lot of history of, of performance, but if you go to a bank and you have no collateral on your business's balance sheet that you can put up in, in order to secure the loan, they generally won't do it unless you're very large. And as I think about you know where revenue-based financing might be suitable or not, I'd imagine you know you have both the type of company in terms of what's their product and are they climate, of course, and that to your business, but then also the business model of the company itself. You know, are there more are some business models more suitable for this kind of financing than others? Sure. Yeah. So for for revenue-based financing, we typically look at one of sort of four models. One is pure software, uh, so typically SaaS. Uh, another is small or smaller hardware, where there's like a higher frequency of purchase. And so there's consistent growing revenue over time, and there's typically higher gross margins, because uh, we generally want to see about a, a, at least a 35% gross margin in order for us to do RBF. We'll look at recurring services businesses or, or services businesses with repeat purchases where maybe they don't have a long-term contract, but the same customers keep coming back and showing that there's like repeat value. And then we'll also look at a hybrid model of any one of those three. And so we, you know, we kind of push the boundaries of where people historically have applied revenue-based financing. I think if you look at most of the other alternative finance players in the market, they generally stick to SaaS. Some of them will do recurring services. Most of them won't do hardware. And, and I think to some degree, that's been driven by a lot of assumptions and sort of concerns about macro risks that, in our case, we think climate creates a very unique sort of market opportunity where demand at a, at a market level from consumers, enterprises, corporates, governments, et cetera, will kind of only go in one direction. And there's a lot of secondary factors that drive positive trends in the market, including government incentives, things like the IRA, et cetera, which like don't necessarily exist if you lend across SaaS or if you lend in e-commerce. And so that's why we're, we're comfortable kind of pushing the bounds and, and testing this model out with, with businesses that often don't look like what others will necessarily revenue-based finance. You know, with our grant advanced product, we, those restrictions don't apply. We're very comfortable advancing against grants regardless of the business model, as long as it's in climate and they, those grants are coming from state or federal sources. And just on that, I actually have a little bit of personal experience on the grant problem. So a few years ago, uh, a good friend of mine was involved in an ARPA-E soil carbon uh, grant. It was a seven-figure grant and they wouldn't get it for nine months. And so they are trying to take this particular type of soil science and, and convert it into a product, right? That is something they can build. It was a piece of hardware and they had to raise. They went out and they raised a seed and basically it was a very de-risk seed from the seed investors point yeah. of view, right? They could literally point to, there's going to be a couple million dollars coming into this company in nine months, but they needed working capital, right? Because they didn't, you know, the government moves slower than startups, right? So they needed to kind right. of get ahead. They wanted to start building the prototype and all that kind of thing. 
And so I guess like in compared to the type of work that you're doing, um, you're eliminating that early dilution if you if you can avoid it at all. Oh yeah, I mean it's this is like a very common refrain that we hear is that folks will you know they'll win a DOE grant, USDA grant, California Energy Commission, NYSERDA, you name it. You pick an agency, and most of them will tell you you're getting the money somewhere in that six to nine month range before they actually start reimbursing you for expenses against the grant, and that time is really painful. And to your point, you know, folks will often go and raise equity, which at that stage is incredibly expensive capital. I mean, it's like 10x more expensive than I think our grant advance on an effective IRR basis, because folks are, you know, they're often getting sort of pre-seed or seed prices, and they're expecting a, I don't know, 100x return if they're betting at that stage. And so our terms are very, very different. And in many ways, we're offering folks a product that I don't, I don't think anybody else offers today. And we're pretty excited about the response we're getting from the market. Why doesn't it exist? It is actually shocking because I saw uh, you mentioned this follow you, of course, on Twitter. And I think it was only a few weeks ago when, when this was announced. And I was like, of course, like, like I literally had this conversation with my friend who was going through this whole thing about a year and a half ago. And it never even kind of occurred to us that there was somebody who was doing an upfront loan, like immediately both of our minds went to venture, right? Like that was the default because we didn't even consider it. But it seems just with the amount of money, not just in the United States, but around the world, going into various grant programs, not just for climate, but for other kind of applications, you know, it's surprising when you have literally a commitment of capital from the government in a sub one year period that no other financial institution has taken advantage of that. I agree. We've seen sort of boutique lenders do this in limited contexts. And, and, and there are folks who do this with certain tax incentives. So like there's a group that, that advances against R&D tax credits that we've seen. But yeah, we've never, we've never seen folks doing this at scale, lending against state or federal grant funds, especially in climate. And so, yeah, I mean, look, the, the opportunity is so big that I would welcome as many folks as want to come in and do this. I think just in the U.S., it's north of thirty billion a year in funds that are dispersed through these mechanisms, based on you know our conversations with folks who write these grants, manage these grants, et cetera. And that's a that's a pretty large amount. And you know, you have these two products now out. What does it take to get a financial product live? Right? It's finance. I think it can be often complex. People, or at least from the outside. You, know, you hear words like underwriting and like all these different things. You know, what, what's the process from going to like, look, we have this climate grant advance just because I'm naming it because it's the more recent innovation, but yeah. going from that as an idea through to it going live, you know, who are the kinds of people that you either have to have your, your team or consult with to get to that stage? That's a good question. I think there's a lot of pieces to this, right? One is that you need to actually have the permission to lend. So maybe we'll start with compliance. I, you know, these aren't necessarily in, in this order, but these are like the key pillars, right? So you need to be able to lend. In a lot of the US, commercial lending isn't super regulated. As long as you have like a signed contract in place, most states allow business to business lending without much regulation. There are exceptions. The state of California is one. We're a licensed lender in the state of California. That process took a long time. It was like a very long and painful process. Are we saying over a year or like just what's long? It was just under a year, I think. Maybe a little less than that. The thing is, 
it kind of depends on where you're at. You can, you can technically do one or two loans in California, business to business before you apply for your lending license. And if you've done transactions, the process is actually longer because they, they sort of dig into those as well as the track record of the people who own the business, the people who run the business, et cetera. There's like a very large amount of diligence that's done by the financial protection agency there. So that that's compliance. Two, you, you know, you need a team that can actually do underwriting, who can understand sort of risk in the context of credit, who can understand where can a transaction break down. With the grant advance, we spent a bit of time talking to, I mean, one, we sort of structured it internally, and then we talked to a number of experts externally to sort of nail down the dynamics of the product, because there, there's a lot of intentionality behind how the fees are charged and when and, and sort of how the structure works. And then, you know, you have to do a, a pilot transaction, typically with capital off your balance sheet. So you have to take some personal, well, personal corporate risk to prove that the product is investable. And then, you know, if you have an outside credit facility, you know, or an outside fund or whatever, where you have external investors, you have to convince them that, that this is a product worth investing with under the mandate that you already have. And so in our case, you know, we, we did two pilot deals and then we went to our investors for our first debt facility. And we said, Hey, we'd like to incorporate this product into our lending. And they all unanimously approved. And then, and then we rolled it out. So, you know, I, I would say it was like a, at least a six month process from kind of start to making it public. But there was actually quite a lot of work that happened before that, where, you know, we sort of understood the market, we did the homework, we talked to entrepreneurs, we tried to understand sort of where people, where people's comfort levels are around pricing and structure and what they, what do they actually need in this product? And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if in six, nine, 12 months, our grant advance looks very different than it does today, because we're constantly getting feedback on how we can improve it. And I guess that kind of goes to this core ethos. I was reading on your website, like one of the values of During Planet is to be very kind of founder first. And this is something that both you and I, we have raised a venture for our current startups and a lot of people on the venture side, right? <laughs> Everyone's founder first, right? So I guess, how do you come about you know, making sure that that value is kind of enshrined in you know, the products and the company you're building. I mean, we think about the, the sort of the impact on, on founders and, and teams at every step of that sort of customer experience. So one is we have, I would say, pretty radical transparency when it comes to how we lend and, and what our instruments look like and what the process will look like. With revenue-based financing, we even built a tool that allows folks to estimate how much money they could raise from us before they even apply. They don't have to like sign up for any marketing. They don't have to do anything weird. They can just play around with a calculator. We also make the application itself very short and very simple. Um, so it takes about 10 minutes to apply for funding with us. It's, I would argue, pretty effortless. And then we also spend a lot of time thinking about how we communicate and negotiate throughout the, the actual loan process. So once somebody's applied, Generally, they can expect to see a term sheet within a week, which is pretty fast. Uh, that time is going to get much shorter as we sort of enshrine some of the automation we've been building over the last 12 months. And we also 
are very clear about what we're looking for and what we need and what's missing. I think a lot of the time, as you and I probably both experienced raising money, when you raise from VCs, there is no incentive for good communication. And what it means is that often you will pitch someone and they just won't follow up or they'll follow up at a random time or they'll wait for you to get a lead or like they might turn you down, but they won't tell you why. There's like all these things that happen when you're raising venture where in our case, we just don't do that. So if you, if you are not a fit for our financing, we tell you exactly why. We set up check-ins to make sure that we are aware of when you hit the milestones that we need to see for you to be sort of investable. And like we, we spend a lot of time making sure that founders have a good experience raising money from us. And then beyond that, we've built a pretty robust network, like a pretty, pretty big community of folks that bring additional value to the companies that we engage with, even if they're not our portfolio businesses. So we have a network of over 250 VCs that we share deal flow with, and we will connect founders to those VCs, whether they're portfolio companies or ours or not. Obviously the referral looks different if it's somebody we're invested in, but we're, we're very open to make those introductions. And we've also have a network of like, I think close to 40 partners now that offer discounted services to climate entrepreneurs around pitch deck design, you know, fractional CFO, bookkeeping and accounting, grant writing, you name it, we probably have a resource for you. And we're very like, we, we're not shy about sharing those resources. In, in our mind, climate entrepreneurs should have capital to build the solutions that they're building at the pace that they are able to absorb that capital, whether it's our money or not. Because the, the world's on fire and we don't have time to fuck around. Absolutely. And within that, though, you also have, you might be finding non-climate companies, did they ever approach you? Because one of the things we are having in my own company is um, we've had some data centers and I won't get into details of, of, of our own product and my kind of day job startup, but you know, we had data centers and you know, cannabis farms and all these kind of things try to use our product and I'm, I'm like oh do you use renewable energy right <laughs> do you have some sort of climate piece and and they don't and so in that case we actually don't we won't work with them as customers have you had anybody come in and say hey this this house sounds great but yeah you know, we're not really doing anything on the climate you know will you make an exception and i guess how do you evaluate that it's interesting so our our application form sort of limits people's ability to apply unless they can define a climate narrative if we don't see it, we'll often, that's the first check is like, hey, can you help us understand how you are driving impact around the climate crisis? We're, we're pretty flexible with our definition of what's sort of in scope or not, as long as we see a path towards reducing emissions, removing carbon out of the atmosphere or supporting adaptation and resilience, we're, we're pretty flexible. Um, and we've had to turn companies down in the past that don't have a strong enough climate story. We had at one point, a business applied that was doing sort of, oh God, what was it? Uh, it was like a marketplace for beach related products, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I, I get that, that uh, sort of coral reefs are threatened as a result of climate change. I get that, um, you know, obviously like people's ability to enjoy the beach, it might be impacted by climate change, but if they'd come to us and said, hey, you know, all the products we sell are zero carbon and they're all like friendly towards coral reef 
restoration, and that's like a core ethos, then they would have been in scope. But if they, but because they don't have that, that to us was not a strong enough link for us to fund. So we we spend, you know, most most of the deals we see are very much in scope, and we we'll you know we'll spend time to understand those edge cases so that we can make sure we're not missing opportunities, but also to make sure that we're like staying true to our mission, which is to be investing in the space. And one of the things you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier is, you know, being quite public and transparent and, you know, a, a lot of folks, not that many, I would say on average, but like there's more and more folks who are what they call you know, building in public, right? Being very open yeah. about their process, being very open on their steps. And actually you've gone to, you know, a very high degree of this because I know you had uh, TechCrunch review your a pitch deck, right? That's right. And so just, and which I read with great interest a few months ago when it came out, and I'm sure has been really beneficial to a lot of folks to kind of see, you know, how, like, you know, basically it's a you know, critique of your pitch deck, uh, even though it's successful in, in raising money, uh, it still kind of demystifies a lot of these elements. And so, yeah, yeah, I guess, was building in public like this very kind of conscious decision? And I guess, what are the pros and cons of, you know, building in that kind of way? You know, I don't know if we take it to the same degree that, I've seen other folks do. Um, I know there are companies who like make their all their financials public through, there's like a service that can sort of link into your banking and accounting and like publish core metrics. And um, I, we don't we don't go that far. I think for us, we, we feel very strongly about our role as a kind of enabling community driven player in this ecosystem. And whether it's our capital, our network, our lessons, we want those things to be available to entrepreneurs who are, you know, building solutions for climate. And I think that in some ways, it almost feels like it's not a choice because the stakes are so high. And I, I don't think it actually generally benefits anyone to be super like closed off in this process mm -hmm. the the market is insanely huge the opportunity is is just so vast it's almost incomprehensible and so you know even if somebody showed up tomorrow doing what we do i i like i wouldn't even be worried about it. i'd want to help them build their mm -hmm. business so that we could put more more money in the hands of climate entrepreneurs um so i think you know one of the things that is, has helped us is that it sort of cements this brand and and shows people that we're like we're we're not um we're, we're not our goal is not to be an extractive actor mm -hmm. in this ecosystem but it's to contribute and to be part of a community and to help other people be successful and you know just today somebody uh, approached us for funding and we talked about their model and i was like you shouldn't take our money like there's better money for you out there let me connect you to the people who can provide you capital that's more aligned with the needs of your business like we could probably make it work but but then it just it's like not the right capital it's not the right structure for what you're trying to build and i, I think folks should have those conversations more often like i would love to see vcs who, when somebody pitches them for funding, they say, oh, you're trying to raise 3 million, but you're planning to spend a million of that on marketing. Like, why don't you just raise two and then I'll help you find some revenue-based financing for that extra million so that you're not 
taking on crazy expensive dilutive capital to fund your business. Instead, they generally like, oh, cool, more allocation, like I'll take it. But I think if we all sort of took that alternate position, I think we would all be better off. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, first on the kind of competitive point, it's one of the wonderful aspects of being in the climate space is that how helpful everybody is. And, you know, I've taken calls with competitors, you know, I've, I've been helpful where I can. And being very open to like, you know, disqualifying potential users, you know, if they're yeah. not very core, right, so that they can get value elsewhere is, is kind of super important. And, you know, we kind of touched upon it at the beginning. Um, and I've talked, I think, actually, I think to one or two um, VCs I've had on the podcast in the, in the past about how there definitely is this lack or nearly like a missing middle of financing, right? And it's actually come up more on the project financing side where somebody's trying mm-hmm. to build some piece of infrastructure and they're using, you know, venture-backed capital to yep. like build something that is just incredibly expensive, right? You think about like something like a vertical farm, right? Um, if you're building a vertical farm, you're building physical assets in the real world. Now you might want to raise venture for your technical team and your software team to manage, you know, some sort of software that does a certain type of lighting and all this kind of thing. But the physical hardware and the physical um, real estate, um, it's very, very expensive to use equity-based uh, financing for that. And I think a lot of it's just been, you know, founders have been exposed and there haven't been the products available to actually say, okay, I'm going to have a slightly more complex capital stack. You know, 40% of it's going to be in this bucket, 30% in this bucket and the other in this other bucket. Um, Up to now, like, I I don't think people thought in terms of like, okay, I might have to have a slightly more complexity in order to kind of maximize the value and make sure the right buckets of capital are being used for the right things. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's always really interesting to me when companies spend a lot of time optimizing for their technical stack or their like organizational structure or their, you know, whatever it may be. But then when they think about capital, they have like a very simplistic view on what's available, how it should be used, when it should be raised. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to a founder and I said, hey, you know, we think you'd be a good fit for this product. And they're like, oh, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm raising venture right now. And I'm like, okay, but you do know that the cost of that venture capital is like five X higher than what we're, what we're offering, what any, like really anybody would offer for this particular use case. And I think, you know, I think it, it, it's okay. Like it's not, it's not founder's fault that they're in this position. I think there's a lot of sort of, weird dogmatic narrative, especially in the venture back startup community, where like, it's like venture and venture debt. Those are the two products that people know. And, and like venture debt is this kind of like weird instrument that people sort of sometimes talk about, but really it's about venture. And you, you know, you, you raise when you have six to nine months of runway and that's kind of like the model. And it's, it's, it's actually not geared towards the best outcomes for founders and their teams. It's it, that those types of models are way more beneficial to investors who can secure greater allocation, greater ownership, greater control. And so like, there's nothing wrong with venture capital. You know, we're venture backed. We, we have, we, we love the folks that invested in us. They've been incredibly value additive to our process. And like, we're raising around now, you know, there, there's a role for venture capital to play, but also if we funded our entire loan book with venture capital, we, I don't like, I don't know if it would even be possible. Like people just wouldn't give us the money to do that. Um, and it, 
and we would have to kind of be be smaller and and still have to grow, grow fast. It, it'd just be like a, a total mess. And so I think that um, one of the things that's been really exciting over the last few years in climate is that there's this em emergence and sort of explosion of creative financing that is slowly becoming available uh, across the whole sort of gamut of need, right? So both on the corporate and project finance universe. Um, but there's still a lot of gaps. I mean, look, man, you know, we talked about the, the $5 trillion gap. Like a lot of that is actually not because money is available and it's just not flowing. It's that like the, the products don't necessarily even exist in the ecosystem. They might exist elsewhere in, in capital markets, but they're not being applied to climate for, you know, one reason or another. And so we see a lot of opportunity there. And I think other folks are starting to sort of wake up to that as well is that, Hey, if we're going to, if we're actually going to try to keep us to two degrees C, an insane amount of money needs to flow into the space and it has to look very different than what it looks like today. Yeah. And personally, you know, I think one of the big bright spots in the economy right now is everything to do with climate, clean energy in particular with, you know, and some of the kind of carbon sequestration parts that uh, IRA is funding or helping to, uh, you, know, you know, kind of fire charge means that you have a ton of traction and growth happening with certain companies, but yeah. if valuations have been crushed because of the broader market, you know, maybe it'd be nice to be able to delay fundraising another six to nine months, right? And so revenue-based financing enables that. And it's actually honestly something we'll probably, you know, deeply consider next year when we're kind of running up to our own kind of next round. Uh, and it's great to have that as an option. And again, mm -hmm. you, you know, it, the right tool for the right use. And so you still kind of think through all the different options. Um, but, we, you know, we're you're talking a lot about kind of the opportunities on the financing side. You know, you're being exposed to a lot of different types of climate companies doing a lot of cool things. What's kind of getting you excited? And also, I guess, where you wish there's more innovation? You know, where are kind of some spots that are being, you know, I guess, underutilized and smart entrepreneurs could kind of focus on it and say, oh, there's actually a lot of kind of blue space in this particular area. So it it's funny, I get this question a lot. And I have like, maybe the most disappointing answer I can possibly give. I am so excited about all of it. <laughs> right. we, see, we see companies every single day that span the gamut from really frontier, crazy, I don't know, refrigeration tech to like compost subscription businesses in major metropolitan areas. And they're equally exciting to me, right? There's so much like innovation and growth, even in this like small business space. And for us, the things that matter are like, are you, do you, did you, have you found a customer and is it working? Right. Like, you know, we look at the financial performance of the business, not the necessarily how many tons is it going to eliminate? Not like it, how, how exciting is the TAM? We're like, Oh, are you selling a thing? Are you, doing better this year than you were last year? Are your, are your margins there? Cool, we can do revenue-based financing. Or, oh, hey, are you, did you win a big grant and you don't wanna wait? Like, cool, we can advance against that grant. And I, I think for us, what what's awesome is that there's this really incredible universe of entrepreneurs that are building these solutions that come from all sorts of places and all sorts of backgrounds we prioritize investing in underrepresented founders and diverse teams. And I'm proud to say that I think 80% of our portfolio conforms to our like DEI criteria. And I think a, a similar percentage of our sort of forward-looking pipeline does. 
And I'm just like stoked to, to back these people to build all sorts of different solutions from compostable diapers to power system management hardware and software that, that supports grid resiliency in disasters. Like those, those things are comparable to me in terms of excitement. Is that weird? <laughs> it's it's not, and and honestly, I mean, well, that's, that's the inspirational bit, right? Like, there's there's a role for everyone. Take the pie, take the things you know, right? Like, look around at the problems you see, and there's tons of opportunities. But Dimitri, it's been brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Before we leave off, is there anything I should have asked you about but did not? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think maybe just to say, like, if people want our kind of capital, where should they go? They should go to EnduringPlanet.com. And they can just click apply now and put in an application it takes 10 minutes and they can get a term sheet in a week. So if you want some founder friendly, flexible, fast, non-dilutive financing, you know where to find us. Yeah. And we're going to include in particular the link to the calculator, because I think that's a great first step. Uh, when I was yeah, trying to get a, get a handle, it's like, oh, this, this is exactly, you know, you put in your AR, you know, your monthly revenue, you put in a couple of other numbers and all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, this is the kind of range I could potentially utilize and it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, perfect. I love that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dimitri. It's been great. You too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.